Hey guys, game changer alert right here. So a lot of you have been telling me, you know, you watch my Instagram stories. You're like, wow, it really looks like you're training harder in the gym again. It's been a few years because I used to really train pretty hard. At least to me, it's, it's pretty hard. And uh, it's true. I am. I'm back really lifting heavier and a little bit more intense in my workouts. And the reason is Theragun. I've been using the Theragun for some time now. I was really being limited for years by these like knots that I get and aches and pains and the Theragun has been an absolute game changer. It's, it's really cool, guys. It's a handheld percussive therapy device. And it really works in your deepest muscle tensions using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And what I like about this thing is the motor on it is so quiet, you wouldn't even know you were using it unless you felt it. And so it's a really game-changing device for anybody who's got any aches and pains, actually just wants a feeling of a massage, or you got some knots you want to work out. I love this device completely recommend it use it myself and i'm going to continue to use it it soothes all your muscle aches trust me you'll love it so you can try the theragun for 30 days only 199 dollars right now if you go to theragun.com slash that's theragun.com slash you'll thank me later this is the ed Milet show Welcome back to Max Out, everybody. Uh, today is a very, very special day for me. I'm honored to have this gentleman on our program. I was telling him as we got started, his father was my hero. Uh, I wrote my college dissertation on his dad. And the more that I've got to know more about him, I count him as another one of my heroes. And so I'm honored to have him here during Black History Month, but I'll be honored to have him here any day of any month of any year. So Martin Luther King III, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so honored to, to join you today. Well, you join us at such an interesting time in our culture and in our world. And um, by the way, everybody, as we go through this day, I want to have a really productive conversation. So give Martin and I both a little bit of grace. If you don't agree with someone's politics or viewpoint, you know, you get into these topics, you can have the surface conversation then really nothing gets accomplished, or you can really talk about things that are a little bit uncomfortable. And so if, if I use the wrong word or phrase something the way you don't like, just know my intention is progress. And I know that that's Mr. King's as well. So give us some grace as we have this beautiful conversation. So I'll give you some, Martin, that's for sure. Thank you. And, and vice versa. <laughs> Wonderful. So how do you feel about where things are in the world, right? It's obviously been an interesting year. Um, the progress side, we elected the first ever uh, African-American, she's multi-ethnic, but black woman is the vice president of the United States, comes off after, after electing a few years back our first black president, yet the George Floyd incident happened, which shed light on, you know, the systemic problems that we still have in society. It was an interesting year that way. How do you feel about the state of race and social issues in the United States right now, particularly in our country? So that's a, a very, a very, very interesting question because I feel I always try to look at things in a positive way, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, you could look at a cup as half empty or half full. Mm -hmm. um, while I certainly am not happy about the divisions that exist in our nation, and I think it's healthy to have debate and discussion, but I think we as human beings being from my perspective, the highest creation of God should operate in a different and more civil way, even if we disagree. I think my father 
showed us how to disagree without being disagreeable through his techniques. Whether you agreed with him or not, you had to uh, hopefully respect the manner in which he approached an issue. So what I'm disappointed about is that in 2021, or certainly in 2020, but certainly as well 2021, we still have not addressed one, one of the evils that my father characterized as a triple evil. And he talked about eradicating from our nation poverty, racism, uh, and he said militarism, but I sort of changed militarism to violence. So poverty, racism, and violence. Racism is where, where I'll start uh, very, very briefly because we are far better as a nation and as human beings than much of the behavior that we see exhibited from time to time. And so we find ourselves at a crossroads where we were operating as a divided state of America as opposed to a united states of America. Yeah. Um, and so we've got a myriad of issues to address, but I, I, I just believe that when it comes to racial intolerance and racial justice. I mean, I, I was very um, certainly proud to see more civil rights demonstrations. I, I, was, I should first say, tragically seeing the death of George Floyd um, should have, it, it, it certainly impacted millions of people. Why did I say that? I think because for the first time uh, and it may be probably because of the pandemic, the tragedy of the pandemic, people were at home yeah. watching it immediately on the news, yeah. seeing an officer whose job is to protect and serve becoming judge, jury, and seemingly executioner all in, in one. Yeah. And so it didn't feel right. What it caused was massive demonstrations all over our nation, but not just our nation. We had demonstrations in every state of our nation. Mm. The largest civil rights demonstrations ever. That, that has never happened. Many of those were led by young white people and older white people in some communities. Mm. I remember an older white woman in Arkansas saying that when that young man called for his mother, it galvanized mothers all over the, the place. And all over the place literally because demonstrations were taking place in Europe. Demonstrations were taking place in Australia. Demonstrations were taking place on the African continent. Demonstrations were taking place in South America uh, and demonstrations in Canada, uh, along with the United States. So these have been the largest demonstrations that we've ever seen uh, in our lifetime. Now, to me, what that means is our world acknowledged that there is a problem that we have to address. You know, you can act as if it doesn't exist. For many years, we didn't talk about it. Under President Obama, you know, we acted as if we were post-racial, we, we, but it was real. And we should have had those discussions back then. But certainly, you know, what President Trump probably one day when we evaluate it truly, uh, he helped to bring the issue out because of the way he chose to approach it. Not so much from a resolution standpoint, but the fact that he gave people who had racial views 
a level of comfort now so that they could do and say anything. So now we know that the problem exists and now we can begin to address it as a collective and not just in the United States because this problem is a global problem. Yeah, a lot, um, of, my, a lot of my black friends have said to me, you know, I've had friends of mine say, you know, wow, there's really more of this now. And they're saying, no, there's just cell phones. <laughs> it's a little bit easier to, to prove, you know, to reveal it. And, uh, and so I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I think sometimes people think, wow, this stuff's really on the rise. Well, uh, my friends tell me this isn't on the rise. This is just coming to the light finally, to, to your point. And so I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I just thought I'd make that point for people that are- Yeah, very valid point. Oh, only thing else I was going to add um, was that, again, Dad talked about poverty, racism, and violence. In our nation, um, we, we purport to have about 45 million people uh, living in poverty. But if you talk to Reverend William Barber, who leads the poor people's movement and campaign, my, and you may know just you know, I'm sure, just because of your research, yeah. but I don't know if all those who are, are listening may know. My father, uh, his last campaign that he was working on was called the Poor People's Campaign, where he was attempting to mobilize poor blacks and poor whites and poor Native Americans and, and Hispanic and Latino and Asian Americans, Americans from all walks of life to galvanize people to say, look, we." We, we want to create the climate for a decent job with decent pay, a living wage. Yes. And uh, of course, he did not live to see that come to fruition. Uh, that was to have taken place in May of 1968. He was killed in April of 1968. But my higher point is there are some who say statistical data says 45 million people roughly. Well, um, Reverend Barber and other institutions say there are well over 100 million people in the United States who are living at the poverty level, uh, particularly families of, 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 of four or two, um, a mother and a father and two children. And when you look at the wages, they really are poverty wages. Now, that really should be unacceptable in the United States of America, particularly when you have trillions and trillions of dollars circulating, even with a very difficult economy. It's obviously with the pandemic, uh, there are different dynamics now than perhaps have existed. But prior to the pandemic, you know, the question becomes why um, do we continue to allow in this nation with all the abundance that exists? I mean, there's an unlimited amount of, of abundance, but we don't operate and live that way because we choose to embrace something different. And so as a result, um, we have millions of people that really do need help. And I don't mean necessarily giving a man a fish. There are people that we will have to provide food for, maybe always. Mm -hmm. But if you teach people how to fish, they can feed themselves and their families for a lifetime. And somehow we missed that along the way. Um, so again, addressing racism, addressing poverty. And then violence is something that we have allowed as well to exist. We've created a culture of violence uh, through, you know, television programming or movies, through cartoons, even through 
uh, our gaming industry, uh, the sure. kids, kids play all kinds of games. Yeah. Uh, so if we want to, we, we, maybe we need to think about how do we change the culture yeah. so that maybe we can create a culture of nonviolence, a culture that's uplifting, um, that's more wholesome. And maybe these are values that we as a society need to look at. Yeah. I'll stop. No, I love it. So, no, no, I love it. I want this is why I wanted to have you on because we're going to unpack all of that. And we'll go in and guys, I think all three of those issues are connected as well. So poverty and race is connected in this country. So is violence. Unfortunately, if you're poor, you live in typically a more violent neighborhood as well. And so we're going to unpack all of that stuff. And so I want to talk about some solutions because it's interesting. Um, I want to talk about something you believe in that your dad believed in. So the first time, let's talk about poverty and then we'll go back into race and we'll keep kind of floating around. When it comes to uh, poverty, first time I ever heard of universal basic income was from reading on your dad. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then just kind of went away. And then I had Andrew Yang on my show and mm -hmm. it's something that he proposed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I wasn't so sure how I felt about it. I, I, lay, I lean politically, I'm very socially, very liberal because my dad, very, very liberal guy. But I've made a little bit of money in my life. So fiscally, I'm a little bit conservative, right? Mm -hmm. So I kind of sure. lean, I don't, I don't have a party anymore, I guess. But, but uh, so universal basic income, I'm thinking, well, that's a, that's a liberal idea. Then I look it up, actually, Milton Friedman, who was a conservative economist, was the guy, one of the first guys ever to construct it. So if you're listening to this, be open-minded, okay? So I'd like you to talk about that because I think that could be one of the solutions in this country, particularly if it were connected to, as you've said, some sort of training because as the economy changes technologically, this poverty gap is going to become more and more vast if people aren't learning skills that'll let them function in this economy. We obviously can't sustain just, as you've said, giving fish away long-term. And so I'd like you to take, because I know it's something you're passionate about too, is what, what's your version of how universal basic income might look and why do you think it might be a good idea? So I think, you know, first of all, um, as you uh, stated as well, in addition to economists talking about it, uh, my father proposed it. And honestly, the reason Martin Luther King Jr. was killed had nothing to do with um, much with the issue of race, other than the fact that he was becoming, um, he was becoming, I think, more uh, seen as a, as a real individual who could unify blacks and whites and you know, the poor people's campaign was a frightening proposition for some. But the fact of the matter is, if we look at things today, uh, 50, almost 52% of the wealth is controlled by less than 1% of the population. Mm -hmm. And while I want everyone to make as much money as they can, um, I think that's a, a remedy for disaster in terms of the direction that we're headed. The wealthy can't continue to get more wealthy and the poor get more poor without it ultimately being a destructive or an implosion of some kind. One of the things Yang talked about too that intrigued me was, because you know, if you're conservative, you go, hey, these government programs haven't worked. So we've proposed all these programs all these years and it's getting worse. To which Andrew would say, and I think I'm starting to say, yeah, maybe you're right. And so Andrew was suggesting that we get it to a number that's sufficient enough that perhaps some of these other things wouldn't be necessary because you're getting the income directly instead of going through all these bureaucracies. And so this is not an idea. Basically what it is, is it's, it's capitalism that just doesn't start at zero. 
And it's something that I've really taken a look at everybody. And I'm intrigued by this idea. It's one of the things, you know, you always have these conversations. Okay, this stuff happened with George Floyd. You know, we had all of these uh, protests and rallies. And okay, so what's the solution that we can move forward? And when it comes to poverty, this is one of the things on the table that there may be consensus for that I, I'm so glad to hear that you that you speak about it that way. The other thing I just want to point out to everybody too, as we'll weave in and out is, is you hear Martin discuss these issues with the um, balance that you hear. This is a, a young man, people forget, Martin Luther King Jr. died at 39 years old. This was a young man. And Martin was there when there were burning crosses in their front yard. There's a photograph of you standing there with your dad with the cross. And yet for you to come out of all of that and still have, the, you can just feel your love. You can feel it when you speak. It's one of the things in researching you and following you these years that you share that your father had as well. But I'm curious, you said you don't think your father was killed because of race. So we can't move off of that. That was kind of a bold statement. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, let me let me extrapolate just a tiny bit because I, I shouldn't have said that, uh, I, I should have said it and framed it as not only race. Okay. Race was part of it, but the race issue had to do with the fact that he was able to speak to audiences beyond the black community mm -hmm. and have traction. You know, think about the fact that if you bring all the poor together of every ethnic group mm -hmm. and they believe what you're saying and believe in you, someone is gonna be frightened about that. Now, I'm not suggesting that racists would not have wanted to see him gone as well, mm -hmm. but I'm saying that there was a confluence of things that yeah. happened including his talking about this radical redistribution of wealth, this, this concept of a living wage, uh, this concept that maybe the, I mean, capitalism always says that there'll have to be a lower class of some kind, and it works in, around that to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I'm not a, an economist right. uh, or anywhere in the vicinity of, of an economist, because in my mind, I've always felt, okay, so we pay taxes and our taxes should in theory help to create better goods and services. Mm -hmm. So if people are working uh, in a full employment economy, for example, at decent wages, they have more discretionary capital to go and spend on something else from the economy that helps lift up in theory. Yeah, uh, but obviously it's not quite like that. I mean, there there's some nuances there. There um, are, but Martin, you know, the thing you're saying is really true. Like in capitalism, I think it's okay that there's a lower, middle, and upper class is a really terrible term. But in yeah. terms of income, lifestyle, that's going to happen in almost any economic structure. The question is, yeah. in our current capitalist society, what does the baseline level of quality of life look like? Whether it's low, yeah. middle, or high. Exactly. If I'm at the I'm at the level that's you know, the baseline level, should my children not get a good education? Should I not have a safe neighborhood around me? Should I not have access to healthy food, right? And those aren't things that are a big ask in a well-developed country. And to your point, if you go too long where that disparity gets that way, you are heading to something that could really not be pretty. And, and, it, and, and it can get to where uh, it becomes violent if you don't care for people the right way. And I think what you said, the right word, and again, 
I know my conservative friends listening are like, oh, I'm not so sure. Listen, it's a value. I love the term that it's a value. And so thank you for saying that. I'm going to ask you a difficult race question. So here we go. So, and again, give me grace, everybody, when I ask this. Here's how I grew up. I grew up in California. So, you know, I grew up around everybody. So next door to the right was Tony and Eleanor. They were a black family. To the left was Alan. He's an Asian American. Across the street was Eddie Padilla. He's a Mexican American. Three doors down was the Singh family. They're Indian Americans. So I got, I have a liberal dad. I was raised, as your father said, not to judge people on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. So here's the hard thing for me. When you're a, I'm a white guy, right? So I've been sort of told all my life to be that way. Yet it seems more and more we're drifting into people being identified by race. And before I have you answer that, I understand that as a white guy, when I walk in a room, it's a neutral thing. And then if you're a black man in many rooms you walk into, whether you like it or not, you are judged by the content of your, not of your content of your care, but the color of your skin. So I'm sensitive to that question. But do you agree with me? And I'm just wondering, like, is there a point where that's not healthy, that it almost feels like we're becoming almost tribal in nature sometimes that we're so identified by race is there a point where maybe that's necessary now in order to make change but long term we do need to get beyond that as an identifying factor in people and do you understand what i mean when i say that it's a very complex and confusing dynamic well yes we we do we have to go through uh, a, a process and maybe a longer process than we would like to and i guess what i mean by that is you know, I think every ethnic group, every community has pride within its culture. Sure. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, we call ourselves the United States of America, but do we really operate that way? Uh, you know, so for example, from my perspective, mm -hmm. as a, a black man, um, oftentimes, I've seen maybe not so much my own circumstances, but I've seen black people oftentimes not seen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a book that Ralph Ellison wrote, The Invisible Man. Yep. And it doesn't mean you have to be black to understand it, mm -hmm. but if your experience has been totally different, for example, I think many whites could not relate and still today to how policemen have sometimes treated blacks, sure. not because they are racist or bad people, but that's not their experience. Mm -hmm. When blacks are stopped by policemen, oftentimes it's, it's a hostile situation and it's over and over and over again. Well, whites experience is totally different. Mm -hmm. And so if, you, if we all are willing to take off whatever glasses we have on that only deal with our own situations and look at it a broader way, then we can understand. I think George Floyd helped us as a society better understand what happens from time to time. This, this is not, that's, that's the worst of what could happen. Mm -hmm. That does not happen every day, but it happens far too frequently. And it happens so frequently in communities of color. Mm -hmm. So we've got to overcome that. Now, what your specific question was, is does it serve us, I think, uh, to embrace a concept of I'm black, I'm white, I'm Native American. 
And I think it serves us to some degree, but at some point we must become a collective of, under the notion of I'm an American. That's the ideal, but it's going to take time for us to really get there because, you know, and I think part of what, how we get there, you know, we, we're right, as you said, we're in African-American History Month. Some would question, well, why do we have to have a, a, a month that, that talks about Black history? Because unfortunately, African-American history is not really incorporated into the generally in most curriculums. You know, now, California may be different because there's a large... Latino Hispanic population. So there is Latino uh, maybe uh, history incorporated. Um, maybe Texas is slightly different, but most states, I mean, most of our history is taught from a Western and European perspective. And while that's good history, that's not all history. Mm -hmm. And so until we have, when our history books open, one day, ideally, I would like to see us live in a nation where when we open our history books in August or September, we're studying all the different ethnic groups that exist within our nation. And when we close our history books, when school closes for the summer in um, May or June, that we are still studying all the different ethnic groups. That's the, that's the ideal way, but we got a long way to go. So we need to study Black History Month, right? Black acknowledge it, you know, because the, things are important. I mean, something as simple as a traffic light that was created by Garrett Morgan, who is an African-American. There are many Americans who probably don't even know that. And right. it's, for whatever reason, it's not taught. It's during Black History Month, maybe we will segue and teach it. So anyway. No, you're right. That's the concept of a, a melting pot. And our education system should have the same pot, right? And the and same people melting in it. And and I, it's, I think it's a nuanced conversation because I understand that right now it, we, it would be impossible for us not to be able to say, listen, uh, I'll give you an example. When George Floyd happened, I had these conversations prior, but it, I think a lot of people had them that, you know, many of my black buddies are like, hey, you don't understand this. My, all of us prepare our son or our daughter for the interaction in the inevitable event they're pulled over by a police officer. So that's one of those sort of invisible things that's subtle. And quite frankly, I have a 19-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter. I, I never even considered having that conversation. Sure. So that yeah. should tell those of you that wonder still, of course there's a difference. Of course there's a difference. So I understand that we can't just be see everything blankly. Same time, that should be the ideal. And uh, it's just a nuanced conversation. By the way, I was just thinking as we were talking, it would be really great if everybody watched this because I think this is how you're supposed to discuss these issues you know, that you actually make progress and, and have a discussion. I'm wondering, you were you nine or 10 when your dad passed away? 10. 10. And so, uh, so you remember him. Did your dad ever, because there's people listening to this, if we set race and poverty and violence aside, there are people listening to this, about every human being, who's trying to make a difference in the world. They're trying to live their dream. It could be starting a business or chasing a relationship or, and man, this last year, Everyone's been really knocked down. Do you ever, did your father ever think of giving up? I mean, was there a point where his life's being threatened regularly? There's crosses burning. There's just the emotional burden of carrying the load of what he was carrying is tremendous, right? I know what it's like to carry a company, never mind a culture. Did your dad ever confide with your mom or with you? Or did you ever see him in a moment of, I just don't know if I've got what it takes? I, I might pack it in here. Did that ever happen? Well, let me let me characterize it this way. Uh, consciously, no. 
but subconsciously probably. Now, I remember a sermon I used to, I was not used to, I often listened to a lot of his sermons and speeches and uh, our daughter, my, my wife and I have a 12 year old and we also uh, expose her to her grandfather and, and grandmother, obviously that she did not get a chance to meet. Uh, but I remember a speech that he did in Montgomery and this was like maybe 56, I wasn't even born. Okay. Um, and what he said was, this is more inspirational. Uh, he said that one night, you know, and, and mind you, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott was 385 days of boycott of not riding the buses, black people, 60% of the ridership uh, because they chose to boycott because of the treatment of Rosa Parks. And Rosa Parks was sitting in the black section and was told to get up by the police. Uh, and, you know, um, she was arrested. And so for 385 days, uh, black folk boycotted. And dad, Rosa Parks was a heron of that drama. Dad was the chief spokesperson and the leader of that movement. Now, during that period of time, every day there would be calls coming in from, I guess, Klansmen and other people. And he said this one night at midnight, he got a call. And he was, he had just gotten home from a mass meeting or a planning meeting that they had late that night. And the phone rang and my mother was asleep and my sister, she was the only one born as I was born in 57. I think this was 56. And he said that when he got that call, he said it was an ugly voice. And in substance, basically it said, you know, use the N-word and said, you know, if you don't get out of here in five days, we're gonna kill your, your wife and daughter or your family. And he said that bothered him, even though he'd gotten calls like this literally every week. Mm. And he said he didn't know what, what, what to do. He said he couldn't call on his mother, daddy, because they were 160 miles away in Atlanta. He couldn't call on, he tried to call on his, you know, on, on anything he could think of. And finally he said he got on his knees and he, he called out to God and said, God, I, I know I'm right. I know what I'm doing is right. It feels right. But he said, you know, I, I just don't know. And he said at that moment, he heard a voice that said to him, Martin Luther King, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth and know that I will be with you even until the end of time. And he went on through a very high emotional, uh, 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 I guess, used a lot of words. And he said, that's what lifted him up at that moment. Um, now, my point is, I'm sure he had those moments on several occasions. And he would have to go somewhere to get renewed. Sometimes it was maybe with his colleagues who were other ministers. Sometimes it was meditation. It was self-reflection. I mean, because he was doing things that back then most of us didn't do. Today, we do all kinds of things that help us understand who we are. I mean, I, I think you have to take a vacation sometimes from watching mainstream news. Because if you watch it every day, regardless of who you're watching, you're going to become angry and frustrated and feel like there's nothing I can do. So you can't want, consume a diet 
of all of that. You have to take breaks. You can't constantly be engaged on social media because you're running around chasing your tail because someone is going to always disagree with you. <laughs> so you have to take breaks. Uh, but my point is dad, I think, had a lot of different uh, support systems that he could go to. Uh, his greatest support, of course, was his faith. He had just phenomenal faith. Mm -hmm. And as a pastor, uh, you're supposed to have that, but maybe every pastor, maybe every pastor doesn't, I don't know. But I know that he did. And that's what helped him get through these difficult times. I mean, when you think about the fact that, you know, people ask me, well, did your father know that his time of life was, was coming to an end? Mm -hmm. And you think about a speech, I, I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. You know, I may not get there with you. Yeah, that's right. Me as a people, how, how, I mean, how can you know this without your knowing something is near in my judgment? I, you know, dad was prophetic. If you listen to his messages today um, and beside the word Negro, that's what's the thing that dates it. Yeah. The speeches where he uses black, you say, gosh, that happened yesterday, literally. I know. And this has been almost 60 years ago. But what your father had was an anointing. He had an incredible prophetic way of speaking and thinking. Obviously, his oratory skills were unbelievable. He was, he was born to do what he did. I'm convinced of that. And by the way, I believe you were born to do what you're doing right now. And But I think happy people find out what their gifts are. They're two or three special gifts God gave them, and they use those gifts in the service of other people. Again, there's a, a lot of work that we have to do. Now, let's, let's look at some individual progress because in all of this insanity, or I don't want to just re re reduce it to just insanity, but we still make progress. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact, and you started off by saying that, I mean, I always thought as progressive in a sense as the United States was when we first elected, it's our first black president in 2008, and he began serving in 2009, you know, people in Britain were saying to me, wow, that's, that's amazing because the UK can't turn like that, that quickly, the United States. So we elected a black president for eight years, you know, and then we turned and elected President Trump who went in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Now we've elected President Biden and the first woman who happened to be black mm -hmm. and Southeast Asian. So in spite of all of the confusion that's going on, we're still making progress. Today in the United States, we have probably that we know of about 10 black billionaires Mm -hmm. um, in my father's era, I doubt if we had any. We didn't. I'm pretty sure we didn't. We didn't. Uh, we have many millionaires, Black. Mm -hmm. So, but when it comes to the masses, mm -hmm. the average white wealth prior to the pandemic was $175,000. The average Black wealth was $15,000. There's a huge disparity between mm -hmm. resources Mm -hmm. And part of it has to do, you know, with home ownership and all of that and, 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 and generational wealth that could be passed on that 
just does not yet exist large enough in communities of color. It's beginning to grow. So my only point is we still are making progress, mm -hmm. even though um, it is not where it needs to be. And what I agree with you. I've thought about people. People have asked me, should I? Ever, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to jump in. No, no, no. People have asked me if I would ever run. And, and it's interesting. The only reason I would run would be to help solve poverty, um, because I believe these things are connected. I feel like, in my opinion, yeah, progress has changed. Let's we, we elected a black man twice, right? That's progress. Having said that, there are more CEOs. There's more executives in the NFL, head coaches that are black. You could look at all of these different statistics, but all of the stats that we look at where there has been progress and there has been, it's still near to the middle top. Yes. So it's at the top of politics. But I think everyone thought, well, we've elected a black president, game over, it's all fixed now. Except, and I think even a lot of black folks thought that, like it's gonna be fixed now. Well, it turns out that for people that live at that baseline level in our society, it hasn't changed much. Their interactions mm -hmm. in their communities, in their schools, with law enforcement from time to time. The food that they get, I keep going back to food, life expectancy for black folks is less than it is for white folks. That's not genetic, that's access too many people to not as healthy food, right? And so these things have real implications and what has not happened at the middle and bottom of our culture is that level of progress that we need to focus on now. That's what I feel strongly about is how do we, we have made progress at the top of society in polite society. But what about the middle and bottom of our culture? And so it's one of the things you're working on that I'm passionate about. You're working with, and let's engage my friends over there. And also, you know, one of the things people don't know this, but so much of Dr. King's work and now Martin's work has been involved poverty. Because, and by the way, that's directly connected often. There's a lot of white people in poverty in this country, but, but by percentage, by percentage, poverty still impacts people of color more often than it does any other group of people. And so the Drum Major Institute, which is now one of your babies, that was your dad's originally, you sort of partnered and there's an athlete connection there. And so first feature the Drum Major Institute, because it's, unless you really know Dr. King's work and Martin's work, you might not know. And then also the campaign that you're running with these guys right now, because it's really awesome. So let me say, first of all, the Drum Major Institute is an organization that my father founded. He co-founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which he did a lot of his work in. But the Drum Major Foundation in 1961 was founded to bail uh, people who went to jail mm -hmm. for things that they thought were unjust, unjust laws, so they could be bailed out of jail. So monies were raised, and my father and, and a lawyer, one of his lawyers, uh, Harry Wachtell, started it. The values for addressing poverty, racism, and violence are peace, justice, and equity. So if you create peace, justice, and equity, we, I mean, not arbitrarily, but these issues can be addressed. We are involved in, in raising money uh, for drum major, and it's actually uh, athletes. Um, Terrell Owens, for example, and right. Justin Gatlin, and Udonis Haslin, and Angel McCartney, and a, a few others. Uh, where you can have an experience with these, these athletes. Part of it will be maybe a Zoom call, part of it may be autographed memorabilia. There are a number of items that are gonna be exhibited. Now we're doing this around April 4th, which is the actual anniversary that my father was killed. Uh, so these activities will help us raise money to continue the work and legacy of my parents. I have to ask you a question. I'm just, 
what has it been like for you? I'm just watching you and I'm thinking, listening to you and thinking, you got that anointing too. You've got this gift for saying something in a way that really makes me want to think about it. Where I'm, I'm, uh, I, I wish more people in our politics spoke like you do. Um, where it's like, I, I, I don't, comp if, if you didn't even agree with something that Martin said today, I don't know that I agree, but where the way you said that, I need to consider that concept. I need to think about that. What has it been like for you to have to, not have to, but I have to imagine there's an amazing amount of responsibility. And maybe it's just difficult. You've had to carry your dad's name. I mean, being really honest, Martin, what is that? I guess it's got to be also a burden to some extent too, an honor and a burden. What has it been like to have to, I mean, your entire life, you've been Martin Luther King III, right? What is that really like for you? So again, I choose to focus on the blessing because it would be easy to focus on the burden. And I'm so thankful that my mother liberated me. Now, let me explain what I mean. At 10 years old, and even I'm told that as a, a child, in 1955, dad was on the stage, thrust on the stage because of Montgomery. Um, you know, became a national figure between 55 and 56 because of the Rosa Parks, uh, because of Ms. Parks sitting down and him leading that uh, Montgomery movement. So when it came to naming me in 57, my mom was not comfortable fully because she knew that my father uh, was going to ultimately come sort of bigger than life. You know, she even used to say at some point that uh, she said this to my wife that, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. couldn't fulfill Martin Luther King Jr.'s shoes today <laughs> bigger than life. Mm. Now, what my mother said to me that was liberating was, Martin, you be your best self. You don't have to go to Morehouse College. You don't have to uh, be a civil rights leader. You don't have to be a minister. Just be your best self. I remember when I was maybe 10, 11 years old, I was saying, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to be a preacher like my daddy. Because that, you know, you just, I, I really hadn't thought about it mm -hmm. literally. Mm -hmm. But as I grew older, you know, I did end up going to Morehouse College. I did end up, I have been the head of organizations and been involved in civil rights and civil rights leadership. Uh, I did not go into the ministry because I feel like you have to have a special calling. And I did not feel that that's what God had called me to do. Um, and so I did not do that. But the liberating point was be your best self and we will support you in any way you can. So as a result, you know, I never looked at it as trying to fill the shoes of my father. If I woke up every day thinking about that, I would be miserable. Mm -hmm. And I would fail miserably. Mm -hmm. So I'm thankful that I was allowed to be the best Martin that I can be. Yeah. Um, and that just, as I said, that was so liberating. I'm so thankful that my mom, you know, allowed that. Now, let, let me say this very quickly, because I, I think it's important. 1968, dad was killed April 4th on a Thursday. April 8th, he was to lead a demonstration in Memphis. Um, my mother led that demonstration. April 9th, we buried dad in Atlanta. We had the home guard services, one at Ebenezer, one at Morehouse College, and then uh, buried, uh, put him in, he was entombed temporarily at a cemetery. And then later on, when we erected the King Center's uh, tomb, he was brought there, his remains. But my point is, 
No one had been captured for the murder. Uh, it was very dangerous, but yet my mother's wow. understanding of who her husband was and what needed to be done, she provided that leadership. Hmm. Um, you know, when dad and mom met in college or at graduate school, excuse me, mom was at Boston Conservatory of Music, dad was at BU. Uh, mom had already been involved in peace demonstrations. So dad would say, my mother brought him to the peace no movement. Later on, wow. he engaged in nonviolence and led. That's amazing. By the way, I ask you about you and still you're such a kind man, but your mother is this amazing, um, you know, I, I thought I knew a lot about your dad. I did not know that uh, just four days after his passing that she did that. It reminds me of two things. I just want to tell you, it's interesting behind these men that are so well known or their women is two, two conversations. One was President Bush, the original President Bush. Um, and there's this, he drives up to a gas station with Barbara and she sees an ex-boyfriend there. And President Bush says to Barbara, boy, aren't you glad that you married me because you'd be married to this guy pumping gas. And she says, aren't you glad you married me because you pumping gas and he'd be president. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then as I got to know people around the Obamas very well, it's very interesting that you talk that way about your mom sort of being there first because people that really know the Obamas very well will tell you, if you'd have met the Obamas when they were at, at, uh, at uh, University of Chicago, and you said, which one of these two is gonna be the one to break out and be this you know, powerful political leader? Most people, 90% would have told you be Mrs. Obama yeah. because she was the more kind of active and, um, and, and out there one than, uh, than Barack Obama was. And so it's very interesting to hear that about your mom. And I'm really glad for me personally to learn that lesson. So two last questions, I've enjoyed this so much. Um, what can I do if I'm a person listening to this or watching this and you say, hey, you know, I'd like to make a difference in poverty. I'd like to make a difference in racial and social issues. What advice would you just give? I think people think I can't do anything. You know, I'm just sitting here at my apartment or my house and, you know, you know, just getting by in my life. You know, what difference could I possibly make? What would you what would you say to them? Well, the first thing I would say is that today, if you think about, you know, the movement that my father uh, was one of the leaders of the modern civil rights movement. I mean, we have every tool at our disposal today to be able to accomplish almost any objective because of the internet. Mm. Uh, they didn't have anything but mimeograph machines. Yeah. And they were able to organize, you know, movements and create a strategic plan to help get a civil rights act, to help get a voting rights act, to help get fair housing legislation. So today we have the ability to connect with any and everyone mm -hmm. because of technology. The first thing I think someone has to do is to find out what is your passion? You know, because we're only gonna really have time to work on the issues that are very important to us. You, none of us can do everything. But every one of us can do a little bit. Um, you know, how one of the things I learned was as a kid, I went to my mom's undergraduate institution called Antioch College. And on that college was a statue of the educator Horace Mann. And uh, under that statue was an inscription that made a profound impact on my life. And it said, be ashamed to die until you've won a victory for humanity. And I was probably... 13, 14, the first time I saw that. But I came back subsequently many times and I kept thinking about that and how profound it is. Be ashamed to die until you want a victory for humanity. And I said, how do you do that? 
And I said, so I had to break it down. I said, you know, we can win a victory in our neighborhood. Yeah. Some of us may win victories in our schools. Some may win victories in our places of worship. Some may win victories in our city, some in our state, some in our nation, and some in our world. All those words basically mean are be ashamed to die until you've done a little something to make the world in which we all must live a little better than it was when you arrived. I want to just say something to you, and I know it doesn't need to be said, but I'm so sure your mother and father are so proud of you. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of the real honors of my lifetime today to get to talk with you. I just want you to know that. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, I mean, a sincere honor to get a chance to speak with you. And um, I know you know they're proud of you, but I'm just listening to you and watching you and just thinking, my gosh, she's so proud of you. She's so proud of you. Let so me share one thing on that. And, and thank, thank you so much for, for, for those comments because um, there were very few things that would bring tears to my eyes. But my mom, at a certain point when I got to be over 18 or maybe even 25 or 30, and, and, and she would say that, she said, your father would be so proud of you. And that was one of the few things where I would almost shed tears because you often wonder, I mean, again, you know, 10 year old Martin never having a chance to have an adult conversation with dad. Um, and all we all want, most of us want to make our parents proud. And so for her to say that just meant, I mean, I may have been older, 35 or something, uh, made me feel really good. I remember when I was running for public office, I ran for county commissioner here in Atlanta, which is comparable to supervisor out, out in California. Yeah. And uh, my mom really didn't want me to want run. So I had to demonstrate to her that this is what I wanted to do. And once I did that, you know, she's a thousand percent behind it. Yeah. You, you, why would you want to do that? You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be criticized. It, you, you know, I mean, it's a thankless job. Somebody's got to do it, but you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, so when I convinced her, she was my biggest cheerleader. Mm. And that was always the case. I, I think, you know, with, with my siblings as well. Mm. So, you know, I, I am... I am so grateful. I, I really do believe that to him or her that much is given of him or her is much required. And we try to provide examples for our daughter, uh, my wife and I, because they are, as you having children, anyone who has children know how impressionable they are and they are sponges. Mm -hmm. And so I've noticed her, I mean, she does things sometimes that are amazing because if I'm saying something that is wrong, <laughs> he will correct me. I'm saying, wait a minute, you just got here yesterday. How are you going to correct me? My but friend, what she I said, I know is correct. Believe it's me, I relate to that one. And it sounds like, boy, do I relate to that one. I have, that, that happened today, just so you know, about three hours before this, she was listening to another column on rolling her eyes. Dad, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like with your daughter, the legacy is going to continue. So last question. Um, listen, we've talked about sort of baseline in the world. One thing that I pride myself on is getting people to dream, though, in their life. And obviously, probably the most famous talk your dad's ever given is I have a dream. And I just, I would be messing up if I didn't ask you this question, at least. There's millions of people that are listening to this and hopefully several hundred thousand to millions that watch it, too. They're sitting there thinking, 
you know, I want to make a difference in the world, but also I want to, I want to make my dreams happen. And you, you have been up close and personal, both during his life and then post to a man whose dream is still evolving every single day, but he had one of the biggest, boldest dreams of all time was your father's. And you've carried that, you know, you said that you don't focus on the burden of it, but I watch your face when I ask you the question, there's certainly a burden that comes with making a dream come true. Would you give any advice to people about having a dream, um, pursuing it? You know, anyone listening to this right now, especially during COVID, it's so easy to just go, I just want to survive. I just want to get back to, but you know what? You weren't born to just get by. You were born to do something great with your life in big ways and small ways. And I don't want anybody listening to this to forget that. And I just thought maybe you would make a comment on that at the end about anybody with a dream. What would your counsel be to them? So I would always say that, you know, we have to somehow as a human species have some resilience because it's very easy to get distracted. And it, it is, it really is life is challenging today, but out of eight, all, out of every challenge, they also are great opportunities. Do you know how many times I say to people that Henry Ford may, may have failed? It may have, it may have been a thousand times. Doesn't take but one. <laughs> one success. That's all you need. And all of a sudden doors open up. So you can never, if you really have a dream, you should never give up on it. You, you, you continue to work, even if you're an older person. If you have a dream, it can be accomplished. We see it happening pr probably every day. We may not know about it, but every day someone is fulfilling dreams. And, and when I think about what our ancestors had to overcome, I mean, you know, people could have their hands cut off for reading, Black people, that is, because it was illegal for black folks to read. Somehow people have overcome and no matter who you are, everybody, there are people who've overcome things that it's hard to understand. But my point is we have to take that energy and apply it and say, you know what? If they could do it, then I can do it as well. I pray everybody stayed to the end. <laughs> I just hope they're still with us. God bless you. And uh, you too. Thank Mr. You. King, thank you so much for today. It was a true honor. And uh, oh, I'm so glad we got to do this today. So thank you so much for being here. Please follow Martin on social media, you guys. Get involved with the campaign on Let's Engage. And, and thank you again so much, Martin. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening. And bless you. And God. all the things that you're, all this that you do um, often to share with, with, with so many because people need, people need uplifting right now, particularly right now. I mean, we're looking at the number of young people that are committing suicide. Uh, the, the pandemic has caused some great strife, but we are strong and resilient and we will overcome this too. I'm gonna do my little part. I'm gonna try all I can. So, hey everybody, you gotta share today's show. Don't play around with this one. Share this with people that you love and that you care about and uh, to spread the word. So thank you again. Max out, everybody. God bless you. This is The Ed Marlin Show.